are listening to the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Enjoy the show. <laughs> All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. In this episode, I chat with actor and puppeteer Alan Trotman about the Tar Man, Return of the Living Dead, Jim Henson, puppetry, the dinosaurs, and more. Also, if you feel so inclined and you enjoy the show, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to this. Helps on the algorithms and all that good stuff. Also, you can find us on all your social media platforms and whatnot. Also, if you prefer to listen to the show on YouTube, I upload audio versions there as well. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Boils and ghouls, this is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Take us back in time to when you were a youngster. Were you a book reader? Were you a fort builder, troublemaker, or all the above? I lived in my head a lot. I remember I was perfectly happy just playing by myself. Now, that may have been a necessity. (laughs) Maybe because I just wasn't that popular as a kid. I don't know. But I, I could just spend hours, I remember I turning my parents' bed into a time machine. I would just jump on the bed and whatever happened would happen. I'd come out and uh, <laughs> it would be a different time. It was crazy. I don't know what TV show I was watching or what movie I saw. Maybe I just read the time machine or something. I think I must have been younger than that. Although, you know, there was a TV series on that I used to watch all the time called The Time Tunnel, which sounds like a ridiculous <laughs> series but uh it, it's very 60s <laughs> i've never heard of it i have to check it out that's my kind of thing oh my god check it out it's hilarious 
they, you know, the, the big central devices these scientists have created is this tunnel that you walk into and it's just all of these, it's like very op art, you know, it's concentric circles and all of that. And you go in there and you come out and it's a different time. And it's like somebody goes by accident and then somebody else has to go get them. And then the whole series supposedly is you're they're just uncontrollably going from one time zone to another. That's probably what I was doing. Although sometimes that bed was a spaceship, I would imagine. I seem to remember that too. <laughs> this is a basis for a good children's story. You know, a kid in a bed traveling through time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You, if you write that, I'll read it. Okay. <laughs> all right, I'll hold you to that. Were you a drama kid at all? Were you interested in theater? Yeah, that was me. I, although I didn't really uh, get involved in drama till as a as an, a serious thing until high school. But I remember even in like, oh gosh, I, I want to say as early as second grade, there was we did some kind of sketch, some kind of educational sketch, I would imagine, in class. And uh, I just remember taking it super seriously. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, I had, you know, this, I could tell this person was supposed to be angry here. So I was really acting like, just acting my guts out. And the teacher pulled me aside. I remember the teacher pulled me aside afterwards. Said, you, you're very good at this. So I may have auditioned for something else. But then I really didn't do anything else again until maybe junior high, high school mm. is when I started auditioning for reels, as they say. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was hooked. <laughs> do you remember, you take it more seriously in high school, as you said, do you remember your first time on stage in your first quote unquote big production? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I don't. I do know we had, I went to um, Miami Beach Senior High School and I was there, let's see, um, Andy Garcia was a, uh, a student of the same teacher later, a few mm. years later. He was an excellent high school teacher. His name was Jay Jensen. He's kind of well known down there because um, he was single uh, his whole life. He was uh, just a full-time teacher. I don't know if he waited until he died or no, no, no. Before he died, he started giving like millions of dollars to the to this local theater in Miami. It's it's wow. I don't, nobody knew where he all this money came from, but he was obviously living frugally and saving all of his money. It was like wow, and he I just remember he was great at letting you find yourself. Whatever your thing was, you know, he encouraged you to discover your secret sauce. I feel like every kid needs that. Exactly. <laughs> it was just, it's, he, yeah, he was just what every kid needed. Every, we all just loved him to bits for years and years. None of us ever forgot him. I was uh, lucky to have that uh, introduction to, uh, to theater and that playground. Obviously, you continue, continued your uh, pursuit of acting into college. How did you ultimately land uh, your first professional gig? When did you start thinking that you could maybe pursue it as a career, I guess I should say? Well, when I first went to college, when I went off to college from high school, I went to Washington University in St. Louis, and I went as a, um, a drama major, uh, not a drama major, as a, a physics major. 
So first year, well, the first semester, I didn't audition for anything. I'm like, you know, that was a fun thing I did in high school. And now I'm going to, I got to pursue this. But it was like, I think probably um, shortly into my sophomore year, the beginning of my sophomore year. And I thought, you know, I don't know that I want to spend the rest of my life in a physics lab. I think I'd rather pursue this acting thing. It's just so much more fun. (laughs) (laughs) And the day I decided that, I came to that realization, I thought, well, I should... I should go up and uh, to the theater office and they have a call board up there where they post auditions for things around town. And I went up and wouldn't you know it, they were auditioning for a puppet TV series that was called The Letter People. It was a local educational TV, uh, the local educational TV station. And this is at a time, you know, Sesame Street was only about four years old, where not many people were versed in that style of puppetry. So they were willing to train actors who could do voices. And so I auditioned and I got it. (laughs) And so I got my first professional job while I was in uh, college. We did uh, something like 60 15-minute episodes of this thing during a couple of years of college. I would just take Fridays off from classes. I don't know how I did it. It was a great experience. I learned about television. I learned about puppets. Sticking on puppetry for a second, to a layman like myself, someone that's on the outside looking in, what are some of the nuances of puppetry that are difficult that we might not think of? Oh, gosh. Boy, until you've seen somebody do it, you don't realize what goes into it. It's, It's not that it's very complicated to understand it's just that first of all it's just the physicality of it you got to figure out how to do it without hurting yourself (laughs) (laughs) you know you're holding your hand up over your head and you just got to make sure that you're you're comfortable and you're you're in a position where you can work give a vocal performance at the same time and not cause yourself injury i know a lot of puppeteers who get uh, shoulder surgery after uh, a couple of decades in the business. And fortunately, I've been able to avoid that. I don't know, you learn you learn little, little uh, tips and shortcuts, like puppeteers get to uh, tape up their uh, scripts right next to the, to the monitor that they're using <laughs> to look at the screen so they can always refer to the, the lines without slowing down the, the process. Unfortunately, very many puppet productions are low-budget productions. There aren't many primetime shows that that have unlimited amount of time to let you make mistakes with lines. So a lot of times there's a pressure to just get the lines out, get it over with, and move on to the next scene. It doesn't always lead to the best scene work, but it's uh, something that you can put there if you need to. So that's that's something not many people know. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Do you prefer, you personally, do you prefer to memorize your lines as opposed to trying to read them? I do. You know, for the longest time, I would always just put them up and <laughs> puppeteers, we all come up with our own little ways of like cutting up our scripts and marking <laughs> them up and trying to get them into the smallest possible space so that we can tape them up on our small monitors <laughs> without having to turn pages, you know. <laughs> Uh, it becomes quite a, a collage of <laughs> scripts. And then we're, okay, we're done with that scene, moving on, and everybody's ripping scripts off. And them. But on this last project I did, The Barbarian and the Troll for uh, Nickelodeon, 
I took a different tack. I made a point of not taping up dialogue at all for the entire thing. There, there were maybe one or two days where I just had really a ton of dialogue in one scene and I just wanted to make sure I got a good running start. But for the most part, I would memorize, I would work harder just the day before and the day of to memorize my lines. It's just like an actor. I mean, I've been on stage. I know how to memorize lines. There's no reason why I shouldn't do it. It becomes a, the, the scripts on the monitors becomes a crutch after a while. It allows you to sort of get through by reading lines, which on some projects, maybe maybe doesn't show up, show itself as as pronounced as on other projects. But we wanted a very sort of realistic approach to the characters on this. And I thought, man, the more it sounds like I'm reading, the the deadlier this is going to be. It really has to sound making up lines as we go along, just like real life. So I made a point of not putting up my uh, lines for this. And it really made a difference. I blew a couple of takes here and there, but uh, that's okay. That's always kind of, I realize it's kind of expected. You're never going to get fired for blowing a line here and there. I think it really made a difference in, in the characters I did. It made them much more spontaneous and alive. And uh, I was able to perform much more in the moment. And when you're not looking at the script, you're always looking at the monitor because that's how you can tell what you're doing. And all puppeteers do that. We, all, we always work directly off the monitor that the audience sees. Once you're glued into the monitor like that without being distracted by the script, you can really just sort of um, stay in the moment and get lost in the scene. It's wonderful. It was really a great experience. Hearing you talk about it, well, puppetry almost sounds like a strange mixture of screen acting and voice acting. Or it's like it a is. melding of the two. Yeah. Well, you know, most actors don't talk about it, but all screen acting is voice acting. Yeah, all yeah. screen acting is, is some kind of physical acting. You'll hear characters, you'll hear actors. I think Gregory Peck used to talk about always finding the voice of the character first before he... And you don't think of Gregory Peck as doing voices, you know, doing like character voices. Hey there, you know. <laughs> But for him, it was always about finding where the voice was in his throat, you know, in his body. For other actors, it, they'll center themselves in certain places in their body to, to try and find the core of a, of a character. And really, it's the same with puppets. We, you know, have a different kind of a mandate because everything we do has to be expressed just through our voices and through our hands. However, we get to see what we're doing. We can see what our hands are doing by watching the monitor. And so it's a strange kind of combination of, of acting, being in the moment, and also uh, sort of directing yourself at the same time positionally on the screen and where your eyes are looking and uh, attitudinally it's it's really interesting but when it's working all of that sort of drops away and you're just in this kind of zen state of being in the moment you know right and that's that's what i really love it's that feeling being here and now a hundred a hundred percent there's no substitute for because you're always, you know, acting, any kind of acting is collaboration. And when you're working with another actor, when you're, when you're creating a scene that wasn't there before through the, the shared uh, energy of, your, of both of your uh, attention, it's uh, quite the feeling. Well said. Alan, uh, I guess it would have been 1984, but of course Return of the Living Dead uh, comes out in 1985. Yeah. 
and we all know <laughs> you're you're the tar man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so was that a role you had to audition for, or was it sort yeah. of a right place, right time thing? So it was not. Yeah, now that was uh, at that time in the '80s. I was pursuing um, acting as well as puppetry. Of course, when I left my college, I went to Cal Arts to try and to study acting in a conservatory situation. I figured, all right, well, that one job I did as a puppeteer was fun, but I want to, you know, be an actor. And so all through the 80s, but of course, I ended up still puppeteering. But all through the 80s, I was, uh, I was sort of on this dual track where I was auditioning for puppet roles and getting them and auditioning for acting roles getting there. So I did a lot of commercials as an actor. I did a lot of, um, I did some TV as an actor. And I think this might have been the first actual film role that I auditioned for and got. You know, at that stage in my career, I was like, all right, woohoo! You know, it. I don't, I don't care what the movie is, I'm doing it. You know? <laughs> So, yeah, I got the script and I was like, well, this is interesting. (laughs) At that point, I was a trained stage actor. I was trained to analyze the script and, you know, ask questions, try and figure everything out for the character. And and I very quickly realized that the more questions you asked about this, (laughs) the more it just fell apart (laughs) because there is no logic to it, you know. Right. I was, I was like, wait a minute, he doesn't even have any muscles. How can he move? And <laughs> and how can, let alone bite somebody through the skull? I couldn't even do that when I was had all my muscles. <laughs> and I realized, well, I'm obviously asking the wrong questions here. Not that kind of movie. It's a zombie movie, and I just have to go with it. I, I just have to be scary and, and have fun with it. And I realized that's what it was. And uh, I exactly what I did. I just tried to make the suit uh, work for me. I had never um, done a suit performance, but it's basically, I, you know, as a, uh, having had the puppeteering experience by then, I was aware of how to manipulate a puppet. And I, I sort of intuitively knew that doing a, a full suit like this was basically just like doing a full body puppet. So I knew that I couldn't just get up there and act like me that i had to sort of puppeteer the suit with my whole body and make it look cool and so i knew it had to be somewhat bigger than life and every move had to be more iconic and sort of meaningful every position and every move held meaning was communicating something to the audience that's what I did. I did. I did that in the audition for the casting director. I got called back, obviously, for to read for Dan. It's not exactly a reading. The <laughs> brains was the only line. <laughs> you know, Dan specifically said that he wanted to see this character thinking. You know, that, that he didn't want it to be dumb. And I realized, well, this character can operate a winch, so <laughs> he can figure that out. He's got some mechanical engineering skills. <laughs> Maybe he was in the Army Corps of Engineers. <laughs> yeah, he's an engineer. There's a there's a prequel in here somewhere. Somebody <laughs> wants to write that movie. The Tar Man yeah. Origins. Yeah. <laughs> So, and I didn't really rehearse any body movement or choreograph, anything like that. What I did, what you see on the screen is what I sort of came up with in the audition. It just came out that way, you know. I've had a few roles in my life where 
I really didn't know what I was going to do going into an audition, and the character just came tumbling out at the right time. <laughs> Doesn't always happen. <laughs> um, but it's happened a few times. The Barbarian and the Troll was like that with Skelly. He just sort of tumbled out the audition. Because I didn't even know I was auditioning for him until 10 minutes before. And then the voice I came up with in, in the waiting room was not the voice I ended up doing in the room. Once I put him on and looked at him in, this, in the monitor, this other voice just took over. That was the exact voice I used. It was the exact character. Nothing changed. It was just... You had it in you. <laughs> yeah, it was just this wonderful, wonderful discovery. Like I say, that hasn't happened. <laughs> so how much makeup time were you looking at for the tar, man? How much off long were you sitting there? Not much. He wasn't actually uh, put together with prosthetics, which is when, you know, they glue bits of stuff to your body. <laughs> he was, he had like a, a Darth Vader helmet that I wore. That was all that stuff on it that was pre-made. So, and then it, the suit was just like a top and a bottom climbed into and then there were gloves and uh, shoes that was pretty much it and then they would they had some extra pieces of drippy stuff that they would glue on around the neck to cover the seam that was it. it i don't remember you know long hours in the makeup chair what i do remember was long hours sitting around in the in the suit with the head on because they were <laughs> behind schedule and they just didn't know when they were going to need me. So they put me in the head and they had me sitting around on set for hours. <laughs> I'm like, this, if I had known now, known then what I know now, I would have been like, guys, I am not putting this head on until the, the scene they're shooting before ours finishes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're not even shooting my scene. I'm not going it, to, it'll take 15 minutes to put the head on. And you can take that time, but I'm not going to sit around for three hours. I was young and dumb. A lot of folks who work in heavy makeup would tell a similar story. You know, I talked to Simon Banford, Barbie Wilde, who played Cinnabites in the Hellraiser films. Yeah. And they say the same thing. You know, you, you sit there for hours. They'll make you up in the morning, and you might not shoot that day. Yeah, that happened to me a couple of times. <laughs> so you That's just get like, made up for no reason. What the hell? <laughs> Now, you know, having done shows where they um, have a little more respect for the performers, <laughs> shows like Dinosaurs and things like that, I see how they work with, with professionals who understand the value of having performers who can survive more than a few days. <laughs> I mean, obviously, they, they liked your work because they brought you back for the second one to play the same character, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I, I, saw, the, uh, I saw some footage of that recently. And I was like, what is that? What was I doing? That doesn't even look like the same character. Yeah. Walk is different. What the heck was I thinking? <laughs> I apologize to all my fans. <laughs> I formerly, for all, all these years ago, I've done a lousy performance with part two. Where does your first opportunity with Jim Henson come along after that? In 1990, the very beginning of 1990, I learned about uh, an audition they were holding for Muppet Vision 3D, which was a movie that played in the Disney theme parks. 
This is at a point at which, just before Jim's uh, passing, where he was in the process of negotiating the sale of the Jim Henson Company to Disney. And um, they were already starting to integrate some of the Henson characters into the Disney world. They came up with this idea of this attraction for, uh, I think it opened at Walt Disney World first, and then it was in California Adventure, the Muppet Vision 3D. Up until then, Henson had been doing most of their production in either London or New York. New York was where Sesame Street was, and London was where they had done the, the Muppet Show. So they didn't have a deep bench of puppeteers in uh, Los Angeles. So they wanted to hire local Los Angeles puppeteers for the scene that, in, for the finale that involved dozens of puppeteers. They, I think, they hired something like twenty-five local puppeteers, and uh, so they held auditions for that. And a friend of mine, a puppeteer friend of mine, his wife was working for Henson, I believe she was choreographing the walk-around characters that Henson did in the Disney parks. There's like one of these live stage shows with Miss Piggy and, and <laughs> such. So she was choreographing that. And so she knew about this. And he called me up and said, hey, I heard about this audition. You should probably do it. And he gave them my name. I auditioned for this thing and, and got in. And that was my first work with the Jim Henson Company. Did you ever have a chance to meet Jim before he passed? Oh, yeah. Jim was directing when this was in production. And it was a great experience. You know, he's he was amazing. I don't pretend to um, have a, a tremendous amount of uh, a working relationship with him because, you know, I think we worked maybe a, a week or two on that finale. And then I was one of four of the L.A. puppeteers who was called back once the film was cut together. They wanted to start seeing how it integrated with all the other effects in the theater, you know, because there was all these animatronics and all of this other stuff. So while the film played, they had all of the other characters in the house playing, uh, just, just lip syncing to track the characters. And I think I was, uh, I was doing Statler or Waldorf or something up in the balcony, popping up whenever uh, you know, they would pop up. Just so that when, you know, Michael Eisner came in to watch a cut of the film, they could get an idea of what the final product was going to be like before they built, while the, the, the animatronics were still under construction. So there were, the, I, I got to work with him on a more one-on-one -on -one basis there. But then um, during that process is when he passed away. It was May of 1990. Frank Oz took over the, uh, the final cut of the film. And uh, we did one or two more of them. And it was a year later that I got a call to audition for, um, for Dinosaurs, one of the final projects that uh, Jim had conceptualized, uh, at least in a sketchy kind of a what-if kind of a way um, about dinosaur, about this dinosaur family. That was a staple in my house growing up was dinosaurs. I love uh, dinosaurs. And yeah. I'm speaking with one of your co-stars uh, soon, Leif Tilden. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Leif, Leif is great. We'll be talking He's with got him some stories little... he can tell you. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I imagine he does. Uh, when it comes to dinosaurs, the actors inside yeah. the suit were not necessarily the voices. Correct. Right. Okay. Um, way we shot it, 
the puppeteers who were I was a I was Franz puppeteer among other many other things but my regular gig <laughs> was Franz puppeteer so I was the animatronic puppeteer for Franz head so everything everything you saw above uh, then from the neck up basically was me <laughs> so I did all the facial expressions all the, the lip shapes the, all the talking and so we would also do the dialogue because this is what Henson puppeteers always do whoever manipulates the the puppet does the voice and that's how you get the the liveliest most present kind of integrated performance and so we would do that on set there would be a second performer um, inside the suit and we would perform simultaneously and by the time we finish shooting a scene there's a you know the audio is just a scratch audio but the whole scene is there they edit that it's all put together from what we do all the line readings are there and then it goes into the voice replacement or ADR uh, automatic dialogue replacement phase of production and post and then they bring in um, the voice actors just to lay the voices over Hmm. now very often some characters we were able to do like baby uh, Sinclair was um, Kevin Clash he was the voice of baby and he was operated like a regular hand puppet anyway. So very often they were able to just mic him on set and use that. And then other times there was too much noise on stage uh, because of the puppets and the servos and all of that. And so right. he would have to re-record his own. That's how that would work. You did just mention that you worked on um, at the Creature Shop for a bit with the animatronics. So what would you say is the most difficult project you had to tackle in that shop? Wow. The most sophisticated puppet I ever was in charge of there was um, Ned in uh, Earth to Ned which is a show on Disney Plus now that you can view. He is an alien who was sent here to invade as a not to invade but just to scout out the earth for a full-scale invasion and when he scouted us out instead of um, reporting back he just kind of fell in love with earthlings and decided to learn more by uh, and he he become he became enamored of pop culture and watched way too much television and decided to uh, that he wanted to host his own uh, talk show to learn more about uh, humans and so he abducts uh, famous humans (laughs) up into his spaceship and interviews them for uh, for um, a half hour and all of the the episodes are more like 20 minutes and uh, there's like two guests per episode and it's uh, just a really great loopy stupid fun show I forget how many little servo motors were in that head but he could do things that regular humans can't and so i had to figure out a way of of programming all these movements and and how to express emotions in a character that like doesn't have eyebrows for example which are the standard you know angry eyebrows happy eyebrows right (laughs) didn't have any of those so but his eyes his eye sockets would move forward and back and in and out to the sides and close together and do all these crazy things. So I came up with a whole other sort of lexicon of emotions based on wow. the things he could do. And not only that, it, it, there were just the sheer number of, of servos that were built in there. After a while, if you're not careful, like they could start like crashing into each other physically. So I had to make sure this one moved here before that one came up here. And it's crazy. Uh, it took me quite a few episodes to figure that one out. <laughs> <laughs> 
Is that a, a ongoing show? Yeah, you can watch that on Disney Plus now, and it's real unlike anything else. I mean, yes, it's a talk show, but it's it's not. It's just crazy. His take on everything is is just he's so wonderfully like childlike. It's not just it's not a kids show. It's 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 a family show in the best sense that it won't drive the grown-ups nuts. <laughs> it's actually funny and it's entertaining for everybody. So I'm curious, uh, there couldn't be a bigger contrast between, you know, you have your Jim Henson and your puppetry work and then you have Return of the Living Dead, which you're very well known for. When you go to a convention, how does that uh, stack up in terms of people that come up to you? Yeah, well, usually uh, the uh, the convention is a horror convention. Ah, yeah. Okay, or it's a screening of Return of the Living Dead. So, yeah, most people are there for the Tar Man, and most of the pictures I sell are Tar Man. But I will put out um, the dinosaur stuff because a lot of people aren't aware right. of who I am or what else I do. And even if they don't buy any pictures or whatever, they all have the same reaction to walking by, looking at the tables of photos that everybody has. And they always stop at my table and go, oh, I remember that show. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the same kind of reaction. That they, they just sort of light up, you know. And so sometimes we get to talking and it's fun. And uh, I'll sell a few of those uh, pictures <laughs> when they uh, find out. But um, Tar friends, of- that's what you can call them. Tar friends. Yes, tar <laughs> I ought to have a zombie friend. <laughs> oh, there's there's a, there's an idea. I see that you also teach improv. So, uh, say I'm one of your students. Like, what do you want me to take away day one, lesson one? Oh wow, day one. Let's see. Day one is something along the lines of relax, uh, have fun, and uh, nothing you do can uh, is wrong, and that it's it's okay to be stupid and silly. <laughs> improv class can be a little like therapy (laughs) in that you know you realize that uh, all you're doing is drawing out of people what's already there sometimes it's what you're drawing out is not something that they wanted to admit was there (laughs) or that they've been repressing that doesn't happen often but it's it's uh, that's how you know you're a successful teacher when you start seeing some real stuff happening (laughs) (laughs) do you uh do you teach on the regular is it like a weekly type Uh, deal or at the moment no i was teaching at the local uh, community college which is a really wonderful community college Uh, i started there in 2007 teaching improv in the theater department and then i branched out into other theater courses because obviously i have an mfa in theater so i qualified to teach and then they started offering a class this sort of general ed class uh the understanding theater sort of an intro to theater class you know which they were then uh, moving um having an option of teaching online so i got my online teaching certificate i figured well this is the future of teaching little did i know with the pandemic and all that it's going to be everybody's future but uh, so I was teaching this class online, Understanding Theater, when the pandemic hit. And for the first couple of semesters after that, I was like, that didn't make any difference to me. All the other teachers in the uh, department and all throughout the school were scrambling. And I feel so bad for them to get their in-person classes crammed into a Zoom class somehow. Right. Just awful. And, you know, if you've taken a class early in the pandemic, you you'll you know 
it's just not a, a substitute for the real thing. But after a few years, after about five years, or not even five years, I think, of teaching improv or teaching classes live, you know, I would get work and I get a job on a series or a movie and have to go away for right. uh, three months or something. And I couldn't teach anymore. So after one or two times uh, having to abandon a class or two and having another teacher take over in mid-semester, which is never great for the students uh, or the teacher <laughs> for that matter, <laughs> I realized I'm better off just teaching online. So, Alan, what's the best acting advice that you've received in your career? Oh, yeah, yeah. Learn your lines dry uh, before and get the book out of your hand before you really start rehearsing. When I say dry, I mean don't memorize line readings or anything. Just learn your lines mechanically. Just cram them in your head. If you have to, if you're having trouble, if you have a tendency to want to link them by motivations and all that, resist it. Just try and find mnemonic devices to link your lines together and learn them. All you need is to be able to grab them when you need them while you're doing the real acting work during the scene. That's where the real acting work, because again, it's just like when learning, it's, it's the same as you know reading your script as a puppeteer. If you've got the script there, you're, there's part of your brain that's been shut off that isn't in the moment as much as it can be. And it's the same with acting. I find that if I have the lines down cold and I've learned them just dry so that I can pull them out while doing other things, then the other thing I should be doing during the scene when the cameras are rolling or when I'm on stage is listening to my partner and pursuing my objectives and then knowing that the line will will be there when I need it. And I don't have to think about lines. Just make a muscle memory, essentially. Yeah, exactly. It becomes a muscle memory. Have you seen any movies that have moved you recently? Recently, wow, uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once was terrific. I've heard great things, haven't watched it myself yet, though. Yeah, terrific. It's just, it's got, it really does have everything. I really enjoyed the new Top Gun movie, I have to say. I heard good things about that, too. They know what they're doing. Uh, That Tom Cruise fella, he's going (laughs) places. Uh, (laughs) um, He's pretty good, and I've heard. (laughs) I've heard he's pretty good. and uh, he, uh, I, I hate myself for liking his movies, but he's he's really a good actor. I really, and the next one I want to go see is uh, Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Mm, Kyoto Brothers, yeah, the Kyoto Brothers were. Uh, did they do the animation? They movie? did. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! That's one of the reasons I want to go see it. Oh, okay. I wish I'd known that. I would have gone down to visit <laughs> while they were doing it. <laughs> Because I remember those shorts from whenever it was, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just remember thinking, oh, this is just great. That's all them. Yeah, that's high on my list of things to see. And is there anything on the horizon that you can tell us about without getting in trouble? We do this uh, uh, show called Puppet Up on the... Um, sometimes it's uh, we tour with it, and sometimes it's a live stage show that's uh, puppet uh, improv. It's uh, some recreations of old uh, Henson bits. I think we're getting ready to do some uh, shows on the Henson lot, if you're going to be in the L.A. area, I believe in August next month sometime. Uh, I think. 
Uh, no dates yet. Keep your eyes on uh, puppetup.com. When tickets become available, they'll become available there. And then they're they're talking about a possible tour to the Pacific Northwest. That's what has been toyed with. <laughs> All right. So, also, I think we're going to be at um, Not Scary Farm again. If you're in Southern California during Halloween, um, we did uh, a show uh, there last year. We did a festival length show at Knott's Scary Farm. Of course, it's it's at Knott's Berry Farm, but it's their Halloween theme show. That was quite successful last year, and I think we'll be doing that again next year. So come on down, have a good time. <laughs> awesome. Well, Alan, thank you so much for giving me some of your time, man. It's been a pleasure to get a chance to talk with you. Same thing. Uh, nice to uh, nice to talk with you, Justin. I had a good time. Thanks so much, man. All talk right, you too. Soon. All right, bye-bye. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.